0: Welcome to the Advisory Opinions Podcast. This is David French with Sarah Isger, and we're, of course, uh, going to be talking about the Derek Chauvin verdict. Uh, we're also going to be talking about a really interesting court filing in Texas that, um, hmm, Sarah, might have highlighted a tiny bit of hypocrisy by a politician. Can you imagine? It's It's stunning. It's stunning and we're also going to be talking about if we've got time an interesting question about can or should the law as our nation becomes more politically divided and as corporations become become more politically engaged can or should the law protect employees from political discrimination. So we've kind of got three big topics but let's start with big topic number one. And Sarah, I just want to go to you for your, you know, right off the bat uh, about your reflection on the verdict itself and the reaction to the verdict. Um, I've got some thoughts on both, but kick us off.
1: So it's interesting, like, you know, how there's these like, tell us your age without telling us your age. Uh, The three events in my life where it's like, where were you when are the Challenger explosion, 9-11, 9-11, and the O.J. Simpson verdict. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that one of my initial reactions when we heard that the jury had reached a verdict was, A, obviously, he's going to get convicted. Any jury that comes back that quickly, it's very good sign for the prosecution. Um, and B, I was a little surprised that the judge didn't push the timing to that tomorrow morning. Um, you know, that was really set to happen. They said between 4.30 and 5. I was a little worried it would happen closer to 6. If, and then, you know, the judge at that point does not know the verdict. If the verdict had gone the other way, sort of the last thing you want is that coming out at 6 p.m. Um, so those were some of my like initial thoughts. Look, this looks really good for the prosecution, but also if it's for whatever reason not, uh, this is not the ideal time of day. In fact, I had, uh, we had a date night planned for like at least a month, maybe over a month to go to this restaurant downtown. And as soon as they said there was going to be a verdict, we got a text that our dinner reservation had been canceled and that the restaurant was closing due to, uh, expected first amendment activity in the area, which was like the saddest thing that has happened. Uh, it was, I mean, when you have a, a somewhat feisty baby and you finally have a date night coming and you don't get to go to the restaurant you want, especially like both of us just got our shots anyway. Um, okay. <laughs> so then the verdict gets read guilty on all counts. I also then was listening very closely to any instruction that the judge gave to the jury about whether they were barred from talking to any of the attorneys afterwards. Uh, especially given the Maxine Waters and comments that Joe Biden made in advance of the verdict. Uh, Instead, he just said, basically, go back to the jury room and I'll meet you there and we'll give you instructions and further counsel, basically. So we don't know what the judge told the jury. So I definitely want to talk to you about rule 606B and uh, some of what's potentially expected to happen from here, even though those are the federal rules. We're just going to pretend like they're also the Minnesota rules. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh good. Fictional law. That's exactly That's
1: what, we're what people t-
0: that's what people tune in for. I think that's fantastic. Um yeah, I had so as the verdict was read, nothing about the verdict surprised me. We, if you want to know sort of like the the ins and outs of how we had been in, analyzing the the proof in the case so far, um we're going to put back in the show notes and I put in my newsletter the link to our podcast last week where we really dove into the evidence in the case. But two things about that presentation of evidence I think were uh, really important and loomed very large in my mind. And one was that the expert testimony regarding cause of death, as it came in, was had a twist to it that a lot of critics of the prosecution's case didn't expect um but was very important and a lot of the focus of the case if you're just if you, what you were doing is you're watching people on the right and the left talk about uh the, the the reason for george floyd's death the actual medical reason for his death a lot of it focused on was there a choke hold or not was he choked to death or not and as the proof came in the proof was it was more like he was compressed to death, that it was the, the weight of the bodies on him that, conti- that hampered him and hampered him and hampered him until he lost consciousness and ultimately died. And that, that evidence, because it was true that there were some, if, if the theory of the case was a choke to death, that the evidence there was lacking. But if the theory of the case is that he was compressed to death, That was, I think, really sort of cinched and clinched the cause of death argument. And the other one was, and this is something that um, we talked about that Andrew McCarthy really pulled out in some of his pieces in National Review, this difference between threat and risk, that the police are, uh, have a lot of authority to deal with a threat, like somebody who is a threat. Um. When they are taking extreme action based on "quote unquote" risk that oh well George Floyd might get up again and resist again, that's a risk that's not a threat. And so what they were trying to do was they what they were doing was exerting extreme force on him, even well past the point where you could reasonably argue that he was a threat. And they were exerting that force based on a perceived risk that he might get up again. Once you could sort of pierce through that veil, and you had the cause of death. And you had this extreme action taken against him based not on threat, not on threat, but on a remote risk. At that point, you know it really locks in a lot of the core of the case, and I think that's something that a lot of people are critical of the prosecution's case. They were stuck in sort of a, uh, a, a an old; they're basically stuck in an uh, inoperative argument, um, and so that's why the the result did not. Uh, surprise me at all. And there's another aspect of this. So if you watch right-wing media much, you'll note that there's an obsession with, quote-unquote, the narrative, that they're always trying to bust the narrative, the narrative that the left-wing media or the mainstream media have. They're blind to their own narrative. So they have their own narrative. And the narrative that really locked in a lot on the right about George Floyd was were, was two things. One, he he resisted and he died of fentanyl. Had he not resisted and had he not taken fentanyl, he'd be alive. This is his fault. Cops can't be held responsible for this. And so they just really skated past this evidence about actual cause of death. And also the reality is, even if you've taken drugs, if the if the state uses force unlawfully in a way that contributes and causes ultimately causes your death in the sense that had that force not been used, you'd be alive. There should be legal consequence. And so there was a narrative in about Floyd. And I remember getting a text message from, uh, you know, somebody quite prominent on the right. This was just a day or two after we found out that, that, um, George Floyd had fentanyl in the system that said he's going to be acquitted. It's not even close. And then America's going to burn again. And that this was absolutely just drilled into people. A lot of people on the right that this case was open and shut for the defense. And that was a false narrative. It was an absolutely false narrative. And I think it's one of the reasons why you saw so much anger, which was really, I should say I was surprised, but I was chagrined and not surprised. You saw this anger on the right at the conviction. They had their own narrative, Sarah. They were lost in their own narrative.
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about what happens from here.
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: Earlier this week, Maxine Waters, the Democratic congresswoman from California, She visited Minnesota before the verdict was announced. She said that if Chauvin was not convicted, protesters should, quote, stay in the street, get more active, get more confrontational. The defense moved for a mistrial on this ground, and the judge denied that motion, but said that Waters may have given you something on appeal that may result in this whole trial being overturned. The judge was not amused. Uh... Not quite the same, but along those veins, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, said that the evidence in the trial was, quote, overwhelming, and, quote, I'm praying that the verdict is the right verdict. Sort of the same idea there, potentially prejudicing the jury while they're in deliberations. So I think one big question is, are there issues on appeal at this point? Um, One, I think we need to wait for sentencing to really know. Uh, two, there is the issue on appeal that I talked about when we initially talked about the evidence in the case, which is that that third degree murder charge is actually kind of up in the air in Minnesota because it has the word others, plural. There's already a case up at the Minnesota Supreme court. So I think we'll know the answer to that pretty soon. And that's why the sentencing matters a little bit. If he is really only sentenced based on that second-degree murder charge, the others being lesser-included offenses. It's not really going to matter if they knock out the third-degree murder charge. But again, we need to see what the judge does on the sentencing side for that. Then there's this jury problem. So the bar, by the way, to declare a mistrial on prejudicing prejudicing the jury is incredibly high. I don't think any lawyer in America was at all surprised when the judge denied that motion, So then the question is, yeah, but is it anything on appeal? So that's all going to turn on whether it did, in fact, prejudice the jury. Some evidence that it didn't. They convicted on all three. If you were going to argue that actually they were going to not convict, but then they saw this, like that's where you would have long deliberations. Um, Maybe they would only convict on one of the lesser charges. The fact that they came back so quickly convicted on all three, I think it's going to be a really hard case to make just on its face, that those comments had any effect. And by the way, that's if they heard them. So how do we know whether the jury heard them? Well, uh, so it's up to a trial court, generally speaking, if and when jury interviews may, juror interviews may occur after a verdict. Some judges prohibit post-trial interviews. Other courts can allow them upon request sometimes, or sometimes it's just a free-for-all. The majority of the time, and this is what I was listening for after the verdict was read, a court thanks the jurors for their service, which we saw there, and advises them that they may speak with the attorneys about the case, but are not required to do so. It's a pretty standard line that judges use. We did not hear that, I assume, some version, whatever version, whether it's you can't, you can, but only if the lawyers come to me first, or it's up to you entirely, but you don't have to, whatever instruction they were given happened in uh, the jury room outside the cameras. So uh, the Minnesota Federal District Court there has this on their website. Jurors are under no obligation to speak to any person about the case and may refuse all requests for interviews or comments. Nevertheless, the court may enter an order in a specific case that during any such interviews, jurors may not give any information with respect to the vote of any other juror. That is in the Federal Rule 606B on the competency of a juror as a witness, but thanks to David, we have the Minnesota state rules on this as well, also called Rule 606, competency of juror as a witness. A, at the trial, so that's not an issue here, but I'm gonna read it because it's fun. A member of the jury may not testify as a witness before that jury in the trial of the case in which the juror is sitting. If the juror is so called to testify, the opposing party shall be afforded an opportunity to object out of the presence of the jury. You may have seen this on law and order. Something comes up. There's a question about whether one of the jurors has been, you know, I don't know, bribed or something. They can actually then potentially call a juror as a witness, but the jury will not be in the room for that. Um, And in fact, oftentimes it happens in chambers with both uh, attorneys present. B, and this is where our fun time happens. Inquiry into validity of verdict or indictment. Upon an inquiry into the validity of a verdict or indictment, a juror may not testify as to any matter or statement occurring during the course of the jury's deliberations or to the effect of anything upon that or any other juror's mind or emotions as influencing the juror to assent to or dissent from the verdict or indictment concerning the juror's mental processes in connection therewith. Okay, so that would seem to cover... Everything that happened, if they just can't testify to anything that affected their mind or emotions or influenced them, etc. But what comes after the therewith, except
0: except <laughs> yes,
1: <laughs> except that a juror may testify on the question whether extraneous pres- prejudicial information was improperly brought to the jury's attention or whether any outside influence was improperly brought to bear upon any juror, or as any threats of violence or violent acts brought to bear on jurors from whatever source to reach a verdict, or as to whether a juror gave false answers on voir dire the concealed prejudice or bias toward one of the parties, or in order to correct an error made in entering the verdict on the verdict form. So as you may kind of have noticed here, what comes after the accept kind of swallows what came before the accept. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, truly, accept anything, any extraneous prejudicial information that was improperly brought to the jury's attention. What else would we be talking about here? (laughs) Uh, So that's where this would happen. Now, again, this will be up to Minnesota rules, law. This was a state trial. However, the federal rules are really similar, and we have a Supreme Court opinion from 2014 that was unanimous. Uh, here's the, the like shortest version that I could find. Uh, during deliberations in a civil case, one juror told the other jurors about an experience his daughter had in a car wreck, and this information was inconsistent with the juror's claim of lack of bias during voir dire. So, and I know, I know, voir dire I get it. I, I'm going to do it both ways. <laughs> um, so what that means in lay terms is when the initial jurors were asked, potential jurors were asked, hey, have you ever had an experience with a car wreck? Uh, this juror presumably said no, and that was not true. After trial, another juror revealed this disclosure, which occurred during deliberations in an affidavit. So the Supreme Court unanimously held that the affidavit was inadmissible pursuant to that rule that I just read you as inadmissible jury deliberation evidence. So uh, first of all, this might be one of the very small, rare examples where, yeah, this doesn't fall into any of the exceptions. And two, uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote the opinion, as she points out, you could still do research to find out that that juror had lied. You just can't use another juror's affidavit testimony, according to Rule 606B. That's where you went wrong here. So it's not that you can't attack, collaterally attack that verdict. You just can't use another juror talking about deliberations to do it. All right. So where does that leave us with this jury? First of all, David, my bet is that they did not find out about it. They were sequestered at the time. Yes, it was pretty close in time. It's possible that she said it beforehand, but like the real Twitter blow up and all of that, they were already sequestered, I think. Certainly for Joe Biden's comments, they were. Um, And then even so, you'd have to find that it actually did prejudice what happened in there. Um, You know, I think you could get around rule 606. I just don't think there's actually going to be any there there
0: yeah you know so I think part of it is that the timing here is really interesting as to whether or not the there was even an ability a realistic ability to find out about Maxine Waters's comments before the sequester um but it what was you know they were already under admonition not to not to do their own work <laughs> this typical jury admonition to not seek out not listen to external sources talk about this case so if they were doing their job they they wouldn't have had occasion to know about the maxine waters comment um at the time so if they were if they were doing what jurors should do and i have been in cases where there has been media coverage of a case during trial where the jury was not sequestered but it was under admonition and we even had a point where um my own client might have written something. Um, and then which resulted in the jury being polled. Have you complied with my request to, you know, the judge, have you complied with my request not to uh, seek out any news sources, et cetera, et cetera. And they all said, we have not sought out any news sources. We have not followed any news. And I think a lot of people who are, um, who are very online It's almost as if they can't conceive of the idea that somebody might not immediately know what Maxine Waters says uh, on any matter of consequence. And so I think that you've got a lot of hurdles here. Um, Did the jurors know about Maxine Waters? Did the jurors know about Joe Biden? That's, That's threshold number one. Threshold number two is even if they knew, even if... Through no fault of their own, someone you know that, that that news was sort of brought to their attention. Did it have any influence on deliberations? That's why I just don't think that this is going to be, barring some really surprising um, evidence, why this is going to upset the outcome of the trial. And then there's also this really kind of weird. Um, there's this sort of weird argument that says. It's the Maxine Waters statement that makes the jury believe that this case could be really dangerous as if they didn't live in 2020. Like, I mean, you know, come on, come on. Everybody who was a sentient human being knew that this case was fraught. Everybody knew it. But you you know what, Sarah? You still have the trial. (laughs) You still have to ultimately trust a jury. And to me, the idea that it was Maxine Waters who really put it over the edge—that there was a dang- there were dangerous ramifications of this trial—is just Twitter silliness. And that's not to justify what Maxine Waters said. I think what Maxine Waters said was not justifiable in the way, in the way she said it, in the timing she said it—that was not justifiable. And there's a lot of reporting that says a lot of Democrats agreed and were furious behind the scenes that she did this. So that's not to defend Maxine Waters, but it's like, come on, y'all. It is not as if this wasn't a and one of the most explosive cases in recent American history. Uh, it wasn't until Maxine Waters. I mean, that's just not the way this thing went. But and even you the still judge acknowledged
1: the that. He said, thank you for your service and heavy duty service in this case. What do you think he was referencing? And remember, the judge is having conversations with these jurors throughout this trial. You know, David, you made such an interesting point on the Dispatch podcast this week, which is the experience that you had watching a trial on TV, you being listener, David, me. And then it cuts to legal experts. You see the stuff that's happening outside the jury's view, like when, for instance, Officer Chauvin um, invokes his Fifth Amendment right not to take the stand we got to see all of this extraneous stuff. The jurors did not. In addition, there's stuff that the jurors saw that we did not. Jurors generally sort of have a bonding opportunity with the judge. Uh, And in fact, um, I know in some cases, you know, after a, a far less fraught, Situation than this, sometimes the judge will just say, like, hey, by the way, if you want to come back to chambers, see what things are like back here, chit chat about what it's like to be a judge or anything else, come on back. Because there's sort of been this bond between judge and jury, like they're in it together. Um, and they're the only ones truly experiencing this thing. And so don't confuse that because you watched the trial, you know what it's like to be a juror on that trial, or that you know what. They talked about with the judge in terms of like, wow, you know, we know that this, the world is watching this trial. That's not prejudicial. That does not mean that you overturn a jury verdict or that it's really an issue at all on appeal. So I totally agree with you that the Maxine Waters statement were indefensible and disgusting and I hated them. I, I think it is an incredibly low likelihood that even if you got it in under 606 and you could uh, get jury testimony in about what happened in those deliberations, because they had happened to see the Maxine Waters thing, you still would have to prove that it was so prejudicial that they could not have reached that verdict. Um, nope, 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 nope.
0: Right. No, total, uh, totally agree. Totally agree. Again, barring some like some sort of just super shocking and surprising revelation, which is, I'm, you know, it's always possible. But yeah, you know, that's one thing when people say, and I, I'm going to repeat a little bit of what I said on the dispatch podcast, I watched the trial. That's not the same thing as saying <laughs> I saw what the jury saw. And cause I remember this, I remember this watching the OJ trial and I watched the whole, all what the jury, what the jury saw. And then I watched what all the things that happened outside of the jury's hearing. And then I watched all the legal analysts break it down. So guess what? When you're seeing all of that, you're not a juror. You're not a juror. And you're especially not a juror if you're then, the analysts that you're watching it break it all down are analysts who are sharing your preconceptions about the case and then are reinforcing everything that you already thought, sort of minimizing negative information that contradicts your thesis and maximizing the information that supports your thesis. So, yeah, I've I've seen sort of a lot of a lot of people online saying I saw all of this and this evidence and I, I can't you know the jurors the jurors verdict jury's verdict is inexplicable. Uh, not the same thing. Not the same thing. And, and also, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Um, well, I was just going to go on a little cul-de-sac about OJ, the OJ trial.
0: Cul-de-sac, go. Yeah, yeah I mean,
1: you and I both watched. Basically, I did not watch the whole, whole thing, but I watched a lot of the OJ trial. Um, who was your favorite witness?
0: Favorite witness? I didn't, I didn't really have, I never even thought of that as a favorite. Wrong answer.
1: It was Kato Kalin. obviously. Well, I mean,
0: <laughs> it's like.
1: <laughs> My parents were deeply concerned. I was, um, I was 13, I guess, during the OJ trial and uh, was very into Kato Kalin, And they were like, uh-oh, <laughs> Our daughter has a crush on the like loser.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, the reason why I was watching that, I I had gotten sick during um, the fall of 1995 and was home for like three to four weeks right during the trial. Oh, convenient. Yeah. So I'm sitting there suffering, but watching the trial. And yes, you're right. Kato Kalen. Was I mean? One of the things about Cato Calen was you you thought about him was can he exist anywhere but LA?
1: Yes. Oh, so perfect. Um, I really liked Marsha Clark. I remember uh, thinking that was pretty neat. You know, at the time, as a thirteen-year-old girl, there weren't a lot of women in the public eye like that. There were like famous women. Um, there were women on TV, obviously, but like. Marsha Clark was clearly not famous or meant to be on TV. She was just this woman who was in charge doing her job. And I thought that was pretty cool at the time. I know a bunch of people dog on like how she did, but again, to 13-year-old me, I was like, man, she seems tough, ready to ready to go. And I, did you watch the Made in America ESPN eight-hour documentary on the OJ No, situation? I saw
0: the FX Tra- John Travolta <laughs> miniseries. Which was good, which was very good.
1: The best documentary of all time. And I'm including Ken Burns' Civil War, which I thought was the best documentary up until I saw Made in America. Um, It's incredible. It tells, I think, a really interesting story about race in America through the lens of the OJ trial and um, how we got there, what was leading up to it, and then the trial itself. Incredible job. In fact, I may just go watch it again. So good. Highly top, top documentary recommendation.
0: Now, uh, I, I, there was a lawyer who stood out to me in the group. Because it's interesting, if you look at sort of the, they all became massive celebrities for a while, for a while. Many of them faded, but the guy who stood out to me was on the defense side, Barry Sheck. Hmm. And, he went, and he's director of the Innocence Project. And he's one of the few people who, if you're going to say, okay did the work that they do after the trial sort of eclipse the work that they did during the trial he's one of the few i would say that that was the case that this this was sort of like his intro to america and then he's gone on to do pretty remarkable stuff with the innocence project since that time that's but such yeah. a good
1: point well we will talk more about the Chauvin trial on the Friday Dispatch podcast, because you and I are going to interview US attorney, former U.S. attorney Zach Terwilliger uh, about what it is like to prosecute some of these cases.
0: All right. Shall we move on to something that is less weighty, Sarah?
1: Well, yes. Although it is weighty. It is weighty. It it's, is less weighty. It's weighty.
0: It's weighty, but it's, it's fairly less weighty, but it's very Interesting. Um, So, listeners who've been following AO faithfully, and I know you have, all of you, you have heard us talk about this really interesting case in, uh, well, it's filed in California, but against the Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton. And this is based on uh, Attorney General Paxton sending civil investigative demands to Twitter. Why did he do this? Uh, Well, after... On January 9th, shortly after Donald Trump was tossed off Twitter, Ken Paxton tweeted this, Twitter, Facebook, closing conservative accounts, Google shutting down, Parler, Apple threatening to do the same, same. big tech hates free speech. As we enter the Biden era, they stand ready, willing to be the left's Chinese-style thought police. No hyperbole there. As AG, I will fight them with all I've got. So what does he do? He sends a civil investigative demand to Twitter's offices in California seeking, quote, policies and procedures related to content moderation on your platform, including any policies or procedures that limit the reach or visibility of content intended for public viewers. He also demanded a copy of all communications internal into third parties you've had between January 1, 2019 and present regarding the social media platform Parlor.com or Parlor Inc. Isn't it nice when Parler gets the Attorney General of Texas to serve as its essentially its own attorney. Um, Twitter did not like this civil investigative demand, tried to get Paxton to narrow its scope. When he refused, He they sued. And the battle has been joined because as we talked about before, the question was, is this retaliation? Uh, was Ken Paxton retaliating against Twitter for the exercise of Twitter's own corporate free speech? And during our conversation, Sarah, we brought up um, a battle that occurred starting back in the Obama administration, but extending through it over um, attorneys general of democratic states who had sent s- their own civil investigative demands to ExxonMobil, um, demanding to know about their own statements and communications about global warming. And a lot of conservatives were saying, whoa, wait a minute, you can't use the power of so su- your subpoena power to dive into the communications of a company that you don't like that disagrees with you that's retaliation, and so a reader and listener sent us an email, Sarah, with Twitter's latest filing in the case, and it was a doozy, and it contained a really interesting um, segment that recalls that guess who filed an amicus brief in 2018 arguing against the Democratic Attorneys General's civil investigative demands and subpoenas against ExxonMobil. Do you have a guess, Sarah?
1: I'm guessing he was totally consistent.
0: (laughs) It's Ken Paxton. And he put out a press release when he did it, and he says this case about the subpoenas of ExxonMobil. It's about the rights of citizens to have viewpoints on a topic of public debate without fear of government retaliation for expressing it. The attorneys general of Massachusetts and New York are abusing their law enforcement authority to suppress the free speech rights of a company they disagree with, violating ExxonMobil's constitutional rights. And he goes on in his amicus brief to say, Here, the New York and Massachusetts Attorneys General are not using their power in an impartial manner. Rather, they are embracing one side of a multifaceted and robust policy debate and simultaneously seeking to censor opposing viewpoints. In doing so, they're violating ExxonMobil's constitutional rights, abusing their power, and eroding public confidence in public officers. He goes on and he says, government abuse of subpoena power runs afoul of the First Amendment. You don't say Paxton also said that the ability to engage in constitutionally protected expression is threatened by, quote, the chill of investigations hanging in the air. Um, You know, this is exactly what I've been talking about for some time is in the, the, the attitude to the First Amendment we're moving towards in this country, which is when I have power, when I have government power and my team has government power, the First Amendment is an obstacle to what I need to get done and shall be swept aside. When I am not in power, the First Amendment is sacred. And the First Amendment is my wall, the wall of protection that I have against the perfidy of my opponents. That's the word. I think the shorter way of saying that is free speech for me, but not for thee, Sarah. Um, I know, I know, this is... You're going to tell me this is exactly what human nature says, (laughs) but it's still disappointing to see it in court pleadings.
1: Well, I think what's uh, more egregious here is like, yes, when you're in power, you don't think you need to allow free speech and not just in power in the elected sense, in power as in your opinion is part of the majority. So why should you allow the minority to express an opinion that you find loathsome? Uh, That's why we have the First Amendment is because behind the veil of ignorance, you don't know whether you will be in the majority or the minority. And by the way, if you're in the majority today, you might be in the minority tomorrow. So we have a First Amendment to just do all of that. Um, what's egregious about this is uh, it's from 2018. Yeah. And even if it were from before that, like this isn't that long ago. Yeah. And... uh I will be even more shocked if they didn't very much know about this potential problem that they had in a previous pleading, um, which means that they knew about the problem, knew that they had contradicted themselves, and just went ahead and did it anyway because it was so politically popular for Paxton to go forward with this Twitter thing, you know, damn the torpedoes and damn my 2018 amicus that says the exact opposite of this that won't get nearly as much attention as my investigation into Twitter will, so it's fine. And what's even more frustrating, Paxton's right. He got way more attention for opening the investigation into Twitter than he will ever get for the hypocrisy of the 2018 amicus being cited against him. Um, and it won't matter that he loses this lawsuit, the investigation gets shut down He got what he wanted, which has already happened. So it's over as far as Paxton is concerned in terms of the benefit that he has gained.
0: Yeah, I mean, he literally is going to get to have his cake and eat it too because he's going to get his 2018 wave of love for fighting Democratic Attorneys General and he's going to get his 2021 wave of love for fighting Twitter. And and the final analysis, basically what's going to matter is that he was on the right side on both fights according to the news cycle dictates of the time and the accountability for being raw on the wrong side of the law, he may even get, Sarah, can I even be more cynical than you?
1: Sure.
0: He may even get another burst of positive right-wing, po- uh, uh, positive right-wing press by decrying the cowardice of the judiciary and its inability to stand up to big tech if he loses this case because that's the latest which is even if we lose everywhere even with trump appointed judges it's just due to the cowardice of the judiciary pretty good gig if you can yeah, get it it's nice winning uh, we, by losing
1: yeah good 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 we've set the incentives <laughs> all correct
0: <laughs> yeah everything is fine everything is great um Shall we end uh, our our podcast? Maybe have a little shorter podcast today. End it with this question uh, of political: can, can or should a company or a, can or should a state prohibit political discrimination by employers? Um, and the reason the reason why we're we're raising this is. If there is one thing that you know we we've talked about a lot, I've written about a lot, there's a great deal of concern about is that the increasing political engagement of corporations. Um, and when I say political engagement, I mean, let's let's define our terms here because corporations is maybe too broad a term because the labor union's a corporation. They've always been engaged in politics. I mean, New York Times is a corporation. It's always been engaged in expression. Um churches are corporations, nonprofits or corporations, activist groups are corporations. So what we're talking about increasingly increasing political engagement by entities, corporate entities that have previously mainly been commercial entities, essentially only. So when you think about Walmart, for example, you don't think, oh, Walmart is engaged in the gun control debate, or Walmart is engaged in um you know a debate about religious liberty you don't think of walmart like that because what you think about walmart is it's engaged in the sale of goods or an airline why would uh, delta is engaged in a debate about x or y in georgia you don't think of that with delta you think delta flies people but as you've seen corporations engage in increasing amount of political activity there's a question about what are the, what's the status of an employee in that corporation who might disagree with the politics and the political stand of the corporation? And there's an awful lot of fear out there that you can be fired for saying, quote-unquote, the wrong thing even off business, outside of business hours on your own personal platforms and not something that's so over the, you know, over the line that it brings shame to your employer, but something that just disagrees with your employer. And that is, and that raises a question is, is there a legal remedy there for that? (laughs) And I'm really interested just, Sarah, in your your own thoughts.
1: You've got some problems. Um, Because I think that line between disagree and bringing shame on your employer and stuff is not a real line.
0: Yeah, it's it's tough. It's very hazy if it exists.
1: Yeah, I, so I, I don't think it exists, and therefore I think that the corporation has associational rights. You know, we're going to talk about the case that's being argued on Monday about donor disclosures at the Supreme Court, but what we saw this week was, and correct me if I get some of these facts wrong, David, there was a data breach that allowed um some donor information to be disclosed, one of which was this guy who gave $10 to the defense fund for Kyle Rittenhouse. Right. David, remind us who Kyle Rittenhouse is again.
0: Kyle Rittenhouse is the young man who is going to go to trial shortly for killing two protesters in the Kenosha, Wisconsin riots. And he's going, going to mount a at least one of the protesters, maybe both of them were armed, um, that he killed. One of them, That he, well, one that he injured was certainly killed. I mean, it was certainly armed. Um, but he's going to be mounting a self-defense uh, argument. And uh, But he was a young kid who went to Kenosha, Wisconsin with an AR-style uh, rifle to defend property, ended up killing two people, wounding another person, and he's going to be on trial for murder.
1: Okay. So there's this paramedic who gives $10. That donation was not public in any way. There's a data breach, basically a hack that then discloses this. Reporters go to his house um, and he's going to lose his job, presumably. There's also a police officer who gave $25 anonymous donation. Uh, That guy has also lost his job today. Now, imagine for a second that these were private uh, corporations. On the one hand, you know, having given this money has nothing to do with their job performance. I don't think anyone, if, again, let's imagine they're, you know, a teller at a bank or something. Uh, Doesn't have to do with being a teller at a bank. No one's arguing that it affects their job performance. But does that bank have the right to associate with people it wants to associate with without, um, you know, that are not part of a protected class? And David, your argument is, well, what if we make them a protected class? but you've got this like first amendment problem and I don't see how you're going to get around that. And if you want to even get around it now, these were obviously public, you know, a police officer and a paramedic are public employees. It's a little different, but you know, the data breach and stuff, it does make me feel a little queasy, which is why we're going to dive into this case on Monday.
0: Yeah. Which is that, you know, it's one of the things that talks that is about the importance of, Anonymous speech, the ability to engage anonymously to protect yourself from both public and private reprisals. Now, the interesting thing is, uh, and I, we don't know the status of, you know, what's going to happen with the paramedic, but at least, you know, one police officer was fired. And now there's going to be an interesting question. A public employee at least has some First Amendment rights. That, of his
1: own, uh, yeah. Again,
0: because the, it's a public entity that is terminating them in a way that they wouldn't if, say, it was a Delta delta Terminatium. Now, the interesting thing is, I raise this just as something worth thinking through, in part because there is actually a state, and there are a lot of folks who sort of say, well, this is what we need to do, and this actually connects with some of the Justice Clarence Thomas argument about social media and big tech, that, wait a minute, shouldn't can't there be some sort of public accommodation argument that says... If you're you're going to have to you know serve all comers, uh, well we've never really located a public accommodation around a viewpoint. We've never really done that because that really starts to get into the First Amendment in a way that say um, prohibiting discrimination on the basis of race or sex does not. And so when you're talking about um, prohibiting political discrimination, that raises a different set of concerns. Um, It intrudes more upon the associational and speech rights of a given company. And so that's something that I think is uh, particularly fraught. And it's also not a cure-all because there is a state that actually provides broad protection for uh employees on the basis of politics that state is drumroll please california the home of big tech (laughs) the home of the very corporations that most people uh, on the right would say are the most intolerant and yet there they are in california prohibited from engaging in certain types of political discrimination um and so i I I just wanted to put a pin in this because we're going to see more argument about this as the months and years go by, assuming current trends in corporate political activism don't reverse themselves. And they might, they might, um, but I do think it is an interesting, you're going to see an increasing amount of argument from the right that to treat their political viewpoint as sort of like a protected class.
1: Which is interesting, right? Like, it's not an immutable characteristic. But um, there's certainly arguments for it. I get that. I think that that's why the Supreme Court case is so important, because it's one thing if you want to declare your viewpoint and then be protected from having any repercussions for your viewpoint. That's not really what the First Amendment says. Right. But it's another if you want to keep that viewpoint secret. And then there's a data breach that outs your viewpoint.
0: Or, you know, what the Supreme Court case is about is you want to keep your viewpoint secret and the government's making you not be secret. The government is coercing you into exposing yourself. And this case should, I I would be very, I'm looking forward to talking about this after the oral argument. Um, This case, I, this case should not be that close. Um. I'm I'm going to be interested to see if it's even six um, three. I it might be a more seven two or an eight one type case because the the reality is there's a long stand there is long standing precedent that going back to NAACP versus Alabama in the 1950s where Alabama was trying to get the NAACP to disclose members its members as a as a condition for being recognized and capable of doing business in Alabama where these people were these members were going to be exposed to violence to threats and the supreme court was very clear that the freedom of that the freedom of association was uh you know included this this ability to maintain anonymity and it would be very it would be surprising to me if the supreme court in a time not it's certainly not They're like in the era of Jim Crow in the 1950s, but in a time of heightened polarization and political violence that they would degrade protections for anonymous speech. That would surprise me.
1: All right. Well, we will talk about that soon.
0: We will indeed. And wait a minute, Sarah, is this a short advisory opinions?
1: (gasps) It only makes up for all the time we've gone way over.
0: (laughs) Agreed. Agreed. All right, well, we promise to go way over next time. Yeah. And we, we, will, we will have a lot to talk about next week. We're going to have the Chauvin fallout. We're going to have oral argument in a, that critical First Amendment case. Um, lot, a lot of stuff is going on. So stay tuned. Come back on Monday. And please, in the interim, go rate us on the Apple Podcasts. Please subscribe and check out thedispatch.com. And we will talk to you on Monday.